about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Chapter 3. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. And from chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them, because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities, it will devour their false prophets, and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zebaim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God, and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Our Father, Lord, God and King, you are mighty, you are beyond comprehension, beyond beauty. Father, how are we to know of you unless you speak to us? We confess that our image of you is poor and fleeting, and we long to know you as you are. Open the eyes of our heart, O Lord, that we may see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one of the surprising things about Newtown, 
Uh, this is the fourth church I've worked at in the last 10 years, is how much people in Newtown want to talk about God. All the other places I've been, they kind of run away uh, the other direction. They, don't, they kind of turn mute when you talk about God, but people in Newtown want to chat. And what even surprised me more than that was that most, actually a lot of people in Newtown believe in, in a maker, believe in something behind the show of all things. The only interesting thing to me was the type of God that I see people believing in. Let me give you a case in point. A guy named Brock, who I met, Brock, great American name, uh, down in Camperdown. Uh, he was, I was talking to him about God, talking, talking to him about what he believed, and he said, yes, I believe God exists. Yes, I believe him. Do I rely on him? Nah. Do I need to? Nah. Is that part of the plan? Maybe. Now, what's happened in our culture has been a shift in a view of a close God who is interested in human affairs to one who is distant and aloof and part and away from things. I call this the Hello Kitty view of God. You know, you walk past the Hello Kitty store and you kind of think, that's kind of nice and a little bit creepy, but ultimately useless. That's a lot of people's view of God these days. Sort of nice, kind of creepy, ultimately aloof and useless. Um, Can you click on, Tim? I can't click, sadly. Click. Help me out. Here's uh, the Hello Kitty creed. Uh, from a book. I believe in a creator God who orders and watches over life on earth. I believe that God wants people to be good, to act nice to one another. I believe that the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. I believe that God is not involved in my life except when I need God to solve a problem. I believe good people go to heaven, virtual worlds without end. Amen. This is often the view of God that's held uh, as we walk around these days. The nice guy who's up there somewhere, but ultimately he's just on about my happiness. Now, I think God cares about our happiness. But I think as we look, as we're turning to now, and you can take that off the screen, Tim, uh, to the book of the 12 prophets, uh, go back one, uh, we see an entirely different view of God. The book of the 12 comes to Israel in a time of utter crisis. And it unveils this vision and this big view of God that could make sense of the moment that they were suffering in and had taken hold of things. And it absolutely shattered the view of God that they had from before then. And as we walk through the 12 prophets, which is a book that was compiled over 500 years, these beautiful prophets that built on each other, building motifs, and that kind of grew into a corpus of 12 books that ended up on one scroll, one beautiful story, Hosea to Malachi. This book builds an incredible vision of who God is. And as we walk through the books, as we walk up to Christmas, our hallowed kitty view of God gets pushed and smashed. Particularly today, I think. Today we open with the book of Hosea. And in the book of Hosea, God isn't primarily the aloof Lord above all, king desiring servants. As Alex said, he's a husband waiting for his wife to come home. And Hosea, as it launches that theme through the rest of God's word, calls to us and says to us, 
that unless we can come to grips with this view of God as the passionate husband, then we have not yet understood the God revealed in Scripture. He has not yet laid claim to us the fidelity, the relationship, and the love that He has. So we're going to walk through Hosea, and we're going to tell three stories. There are three stories that make sense of Hosea, and I'll tell you as we go. The first one is the story of a marriage in crisis. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. Now, you're plunged into a situation here. Any book of prophecy, even the, even the really weird ones, are always about historical circumstances. They're about things that are happening in history. And here you're plunged into the history of Israel. About 40 years after King David died, Israel split in two. It had a civil war and broke into a north and a southern kingdom, kingdom of Judah, as it's named in verse 1, and the kingdom of Israel. Here you can see the history of the kings of Israel uh, in, in a snapshot. You don't have to read the names. That's okay. We're not playing that game. But if you look at the two, you can notice the difference straight away, right? The purple, the southern kingdom of Judah is all neat and pretty, and you know, he gave birth to him, and he became king, and blah, 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 blah. And the blue is chaos, right? Transfers of power, political intrigue, all over the place. This is the history of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom had two houses in it. On the next slide, the house of Omri on one hand and the house of Jehu on the other. And we have on uh, the next slide uh, a tablet from the, uh, uh, the Moabite uh, region that attests to the reign of Omri, the king of the northern kingdom. Omri had conquered the land of Madaba and he dwelt there during his reign and half the reign of his son, 40 years. But what happened is the house of Jehu killed the final king, Joram, and the last 70 sons of the royal line in the valley of Jezreel, the name of Hosea's first child, was a valley of the slaughter of the house of Omri. It's kind of like naming your child Port Arthur, or maybe for the impact Auschwitz, naming them after a massacre, And what God says to Hosea is, call your son Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. That's exactly what happens. Zechariah, the last king of Jehu, is killed by Shalom after six months of reign. Then Shalom is killed a month later. And then there's these puppet kings and the last king, Hosea, not Hosea, Hosea, um, kind of flips the bird to Assyria and they get wiped off the map. The house of the northern kingdom ends. What we're brought into here is a marriage in crisis. God and his people at an end. Hosea is told to name his other two kids, no compassion and you are not my people. Because that is where God is up to. God is in a bad marriage with his people. And the time has come to send them away to Assyria, send them out. The people of Israel are in deep crisis, is the story of Hosea. And this throws into the air all kinds of questions about God. You can take that slide off now. All kinds of questions about his goodness. Oh, yeah, that's another one about um, Jehoram 
I'm dying. We can get rid of that. Um, uh, all kind of questions about his goodness, all kind of questions about his faithfulness and his commitment to this marriage that he got going in the first place. And it's into that void, into that marital crisis that Hosea speaks. He says that there's a way forward, there's a way for Israel to come back together in verse 11. And that's where we need to dig a little deeper and tell two more stories that Hosea tells about Israel. Because we have to listen to both sides of this marriage to understand this crisis and any possible way forward. And the first half and the second story we want to tell is a story of a bitter betrayal. Israel, God's wife, is unfaithful to him. So Hosea is told in verse 2, when the Lord began to speak to Hosea, the Lord said to him, go take to yourself an adulterous wife, children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. God says, my wife has been unfaithful to me. Can you imagine Hosea? He's being told by God to take on an unfaithful wife to demonstrate to Israel the state of their marriage with God. The most intimate, deep, heart-wrenching, personal betrayal is what Israel has done to God. You see, Israel had made promises to God. That's what Deuteronomy and Leviticus tell us. They're a marriage covenant between God and his people. And as Martin Luther says, if you break one of the commandments in the book, what you're really doing is breaking the first commandment to love God only and to walk after no other gods, to be faithful to your husband, Yahweh, your God. And ultimately what Israel did was uh, willingly turn to any other God rather than them and thus break their covenant with God and be unfaithful. It's a tragic picture of the pain of God and his anger at being thrown out. I think this is a really challenging, startling image. And I know in a room like this that there are all types of ways that people have been touched by infidelity in your own life, and I want to say that's awful from the people around you, and that's awful. Um, and, And I'm sorry if this brings up that pain in you, but what you can see from Hosea is that God knows that pain. God knows the pain of infidelity. He suffered it with his people. I think there are two things this tells us about ourselves, though, and about our own hearts as it relates to God. And these are going to sting a little. The first one is that our problem runs a bit deeper than we think. Often we think that God, as our master and king above all, he has a list of things and we do or we don't do them. But that's not what's happening here. Here it's either you love your husband or you're unfaithful. The little acts point to the, to the deeper issue of our love of running after anything but our God. The problem runs deeper than you think. Uh, God personifies the voice of his people in, in Hosea 2 verse 5 and says, uh, Uh, She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. 
Israel who, who, who had been given everything from God, the infinite one, the mighty one, Yahweh, who brought them up out of Egypt, running anywhere else they can find to supply their needs and their security and their peace. That is what spiritual unfaithfulness looks like. When there is anything in us that we elevate for our approval and our significance and our security and our comfort, above our God, we break with Him. It's not just bad stuff we do. We have a chronic heart of unfaithfulness. But I think the second thing it tells us is that the things we do are not impersonal to God. Flick over to chapter 11 for a second. Uh, here you kind of get the, the metaphor shift a little bit on you. And you move from husband and wife to father and son. And God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Uh, I mean, I brought him up out of Egypt. Uh, it's I, who, I taught Ephraim how, how to walk. Like, he was between my legs. I was holding his hand. And when he was on the ground in, in, in verse 4, I lifted him up and I fed him. Right? It's an intimate picture of a father tending lovingly, caringly to a child, who then in, in, uh, in verse uh, 2, the more he calls, the more the child walks away. And the, the sacrificing to Baals and other gods is not just an act, it's a personal rejection, a painful, bitter betrayal. A saying that the, that the love of this father and the love of this husband is never enough. And that there's always something else needed. You are imperfected, so I need to go somewhere else. It's not impersonal. It's deeply personal. A deep relational rejection. And so God says, won't they return to Egypt? Shouldn't I just send them off to Assyria now? Should this keep going? This, this, this mess? This relational tragedy? This bad marriage? Why should it continue? Why should I let it? I've been bitterly, deeply, and profoundly betrayed. But there's a third story here. And it's a story of passionate pursuit. Of a God who despite the bitter betrayal, intimate, deep betrayal of his wife, runs after her to have her back. Three things about this passionate pursuit. The first is that it's passionate. Have a look at verse 8 of 11. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? Two places that were just wiped off the map. How can, how can I treat you like some other nation and just wipe you out? I, I, I'm not going to do that. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. The whole, you're getting a view into the inside of God being churned over in the face of his own compassion. Being utterly burning hot with compassion and love and torn apart between both the justice that is deserved and the compassion and love that he has for his people. God is not up there detached. He's not just nice. He's passionate. 
His love is hot like fire, as His anger is. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. In His passionate love, He turns from His anger. But this raises the question, doesn't it? You're like, whoa, he seems a little bit unstable. You know, you don't necessarily want to hear of God's heart changing within him and being a bit too attached to things. But it's the opposite. Read the next verse. The second thing about this love is it's holy. For I am God and not man, the holy one among you. And I will not come in wrath. You see, the passionate love that God has for his people isn't about them. It's not about how good they are. It's not about how attached to them that he is. It's not about how flippant he is inside. It's because he is the holy, free God. And he is not bound by anything. And so he can come in full compassion and full love, not because anything in us and our unfaithful hearts deserve it, but because he is the Holy One and he is utterly unlike us. His love is utterly unlike ours. His faithfulness, so holy and magnificent that it can even come, overturn his anger and restore us. In his passionate pursuit, it is This love, it's passionate and it's holy. It's not founded upon us. It's founded in his stability and freedom. But the third thing is, is that it's a costly pursuit. A costly pursuit. Go back to chapter 3. Here you get the second half of Hosea's story. And you've got you to get into this story, right? Hosea, unfaithful wife. God shows up again. He says, go, show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another and is an adulteress. Hey, Hosea, you know that wife that left you? She's living with another guy now, but you should go love her again. It's crazy. It's insane. But that's God's love for his people. Though they're bound to another, he pursues them. But get this, it's the most beautiful and understated part of the whole of Hosea. So I bought her. First person. The only time he goes first person in the whole book. So I bought her. He, he goes to the house and knocks on the door. And the guy opens. And Goma's in the back. And he's got 15 shekels of silver and a Goma of barley in his hand and says, I'd like to purchase my wife back now, please. Somehow Goma, in the life she was living, had thrown herself into prostitution. And maybe she's living in the house of a pimp or maybe she's simply up for sale. Either way, she is so bound by her mistake that she can be bought back. And there Hosea is, knocking on the door, 15 shekels and a goma. Can you imagine goma? Why are you here? What have you come for? 
I've come for you. I want you to come home with me. I want you to stop sleeping with other guys and we're going to get this going again. It's a love that cost Hosea dearly to buy his bride back. And so it is with God's love. He has, in his pursuit of us, purchase us back. Our unfaithfulness is chronic and we can't unmake it. And we can't turn aside his anger. God in his compassion overthrows his anger, but it still needs to be dealt with. And the only place where his hot compassion and his hot anger meet are in the cross of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish. You see, on the cross, he pays the 15 shekels and the homa. He buys you back from your own addictive love to things that destroy you. He's come knocking on your door with 15 shekels and a homer, with the blood of his son. His holy, passionate love costs the life of his son. That is what it will take to bring Israel back from exile, ultimately. That is what it takes to win us back. You see, there are three stories in Hosea. The story of crisis, the story of bitter betrayal, and the story of pursuing love. The question is, what do we do with this? And maybe you're like me. I got to the end of Hosea, and I was like, I get Hosea. Awesome. And then I had to repent. Because I realized you're not supposed to just get Hosea. It's supposed to run like a truck through your life. When God comes knocking on your door, having purchased you back with his own blood, when the, when the picture is of him not just as Lord and mighty, but as ardent lover, the call is ultimate over us, not just to know about this love, but to experience it and have it run amok in our life. God the husband wants your relationship with him to redefine your life. He wants your complete fidelity. He wants you to leave the other lovers behind and come with him and be with him. There is no room for the Hello Kitty God here. And I don't know where you stand tonight. Maybe you've been playing with some sin in your life and you've realized that actually that's bitter betrayal. That it's pushing the blood of Jesus aside and you've got to come back tonight. You've got to come back. He's knocking on your door, 15 shekels and a homer. Maybe you're feeling dry as spiritually and it's all up here, but it's none of this relational, incredible pursuit that's in Hosea. And you want to know that love and start out afresh with him tonight. Or maybe it is with you that you, you know the love of God, but you're not letting it run amok in your life. You're not letting him have it all. 
You're keeping his love neat and tidy. You're keeping it nice when it's wild and it's holy and it's passionate and it costs everything. To all of us today, he's knocking on the door. Knocking on the door saying, you've got to have a bigger view of me. You've got to let me in further. You've got to come up. Let me pray. Our Father, you love us so much more than we deserve. And we look at this and we realize that our lives are filled with the betrayal of the people of God. That's not just stuff that's happening to us, but we are, we are turning from you to other things. And Father, there's people in this room who want to come home tonight. They want to come home. You've knocked on the door with your blood and they want your forgiveness and a new start. Father, they come sorry and willing to make that start. Father, there's people here who feel dry, who know this, but they, they, don't, they don't know it. They don't know how recklessly you love them, how passionately, how unendingly, how incredible your faithfulness toward them is. And Father, I pray by your spirit that you would take it and, and lodge it in their heart. And there are people here, Lord, who want that your love to run amok in their life. They're sick of the neat view of you. They're sick of having our culture's view of you a nice God, and they want you the holy and magnificent one. And so, Father, they come and they offer their lives to you. Father, we know that there is no faithfulness in us, but the faithfulness of your Son can kindle new life in us. And so we pray now that you would light that spark in us. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.